Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, our series on how to be rich continues with a discussion about the opportunity we have to listen to God. Scripture promises we can buy all the gold we want by listening to God. Not physical gold, but spiritual riches. Reading scripture invites us to hear the voice of God, bear witness to the historical and eternal working of the divine, and discern what that means for our daily lives. Okay, well last week we went through some practical ways to listen to God. And why, why did we want to go through practical ways to listen to God? What, what was the reason for it from last week? You remember? What does listening to God allow us to do? Well, make wise choices, but specifically from Revelation 3. God, yes, get rich and specifically buy gold. Buy gold. We, the way you buy gold, or from Isaiah 55, the way you buy food and drink without having any money is to listen to God. That's where true riches come from. So we talked about four practical ways to listen to God. And what I'm going to do today is go back through those four practical ways to listen to God because we like to buy gold with, with no money. We like that. We like to be rich. We like to have true riches. So I'm going to go back through there and just expand on these four things a little bit uh, and s- some practical things. And maybe you have some things as well. So the first thing we talked about in listening to God, this opportunity to buy gold, this opportunity to uh, buy food and drink and sustenance without having any money, uh, the first way to listen to God we talked to was reading the Bible. God's given us the Bible. And there's some very great ways we do this around here. Uh, Bible memory is a great way to read the Bible. Our WANA program is a terrific way to read the Bible. And I'm sure all of you have had various uh, times and means in which you've memorized the Bible. What better way to put seeds in your mind so that you can understand things as you go along through the day? And to the extent you have done that, that's great. And it's always, it's always great to add more. I don't think you can ever do too much of Bible memory. You know, the, uh, the Babylonian captivity, during the Babylonian captivity, the Jews created their scholastic tradition where they said, we can't worship in the temple anymore, so we'll worship God with our minds. And they started the the Talmudic tradition of really studying the Bible. And at at the time of Jesus, according to some people that have uh, informed us about uh, about that, the time of Jesus, up on the northern shore of Galilee, those those guys that had come back from that Babylonian tradition, uh, the, the young men, by the time they're 15, would have known the whole Old Testament word perfect. And the, the guys who, and pretty much the pinnacle of, of um, uh, ambition for a young man was to become a rabbi. And if you wanted to be a rabbi, you not only had to be able to memorize it, but discuss the context and everything about the context. So, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it was something that was an integral part of the culture to memorize scripture. And it's a fantastic way to, to uh, know the scripture and listen to God. 
Uh, there's a couple other things that, that I've personally benefited from immensely. Uh, of course, you can't really, you can't really uh, benefit from reading the Bible unless you set a time, aside time to read the Bible. And for those of you who are scheduled people, uh, putting it in your schedule is a wise thing to do. I think most preachers are scheduled type people. And so they tend to emphasize that, which is fine. I'm not a scheduled type person. So what I have to do is create challenges for myself. And usually when I study the scripture best, it's when I can come up with a question that I want to address because that's just kind of the way I'm wired. Uh, This class helps me a lot. It it helps me dig because I like, I got got to find something that's interesting to say to these people, you know, and and it's not going to be interesting to them unless it's interesting to me. So I have to come up with questions. So that helps a lot. But the two things that I've learned that I think have helped me the most in in, uh, reading the Bible and listening to God through reading the Bible, I'm going to tell you. The first thing is uh, so simple, and I think it's not going to be a surprise to any of you, but so simple, but it's so rarely done in Western Christianity the last hundreds of years. And it's to look at who wrote whatever you're reading and who wrote who, who the audience they were writing to and discern why they wrote it. You know, people, people don't just sit down and write things randomly. Uh, pe- people don't sit down and just start writing random thoughts and then send it to someone and then have somebody say, hey, let's put this in the Bible. This, this, this is not a random process that generated these scriptures. There's an author there's a reason the author's writing, and there's a, a group that they're writing to. And I, this was driven home to me to some extent when I started looking into some of the uh, pilgrim uh, preachers. And that's part of our heritage, so I thought I'd dig into it a little bit. And I looked up Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I started reading that, and then I noticed the... Uh, the, the passage that, that, that it's done off of. Anybody know what the passage was that he used as his uh, text for sinners in the hands of an angry God? Anybody know? Their foot shall slide in due time. Their foot shall slide in due time. And I thought, what? Foot shall slide in due time? What's that? It's from Deuteronomy. So I flipped it open, looked it up, and it's Moses writing to the Israelites and telling them, at some point in the future, your nation is going to do wrong. And when they do, they're going to suffer the consequences of that. And then I'm going to bring them back because I'm a merciful God. It has nothing whatsoever to do with standing on the precipice of a pit and dangling over the fire like a spider, which is the, that's the description that... Uh, Jonathan Edwards used. Nothing, nothing whatsoever. And I thought, and and then as I looked, it's pretty common. It's pretty common. And and it's human nature, isn't it? That we say, uh, you start this even as little children. Why did you do that? You ask a child, why did you do that? What do you get? What kind of answer do you get when you ask a child? (laughs) Yeah, baby, I don't know. Or what else? What did you say, Jamie? Because. Yeah, because. Or... I, because he told me to do it or, you know, you, you're, you're not going to get a, well, I think I'm a sinful person 
And I was really being self, self-oriented. And I sh- you, you don't get a, a rational, you get a, a justifying type of response, right? We, you don't have to train kids to self-justify. So, um, I, you know, it, it, it's normal for us to say, I want to make a point of some kind and then go look for justification. So, you know, it's common for people, you know, where, where's, a, where's a verse that says, oh, there's one, I can use that. And you go justify, and you're not looking at what was written from the perspective of who wrote it and who did they write it to. Now, it's certainly appropriate to take something someone said to someone, understand what they were saying to that person, and then make application in other ways. That's certainly appropriate. But I mean, I'll, I'm going to step into, uh, I'm going to step onto holy turf here. And, and uh, so I, if you've got any rotten fruit, you might get it out here. But, you know, the Roman road, as great as it is and as useful as it is, when you look at the Roman road from the perspective of, when people talk about it from the perspective of this is what this book is for, it's not. I mean, it, 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 is, an, it is an appropriate application perhaps, but that's not what Paul was doing. He was writing to a group of people whose faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. You don't write to a group of people whose faith was spoken of throughout the whole world and try to show them from step one to step two how to get justified. Now, he does go through the justification process. So as an application, no problem. But to claim that's what he was doing is just not looking at the evidence. The reason he's talking about justification is because the key in in the book of Romans is to make a distinction between justification, which is new birth, which we have no part in other than to receive it, and sanctification, which is growing up in Christ, which has everything to do with our choices that we make. And you have to have a distinction between the two. If you don't have a distinction between the two, you, you, you get messed up. And, and the, the, book was, the book of Romans was precipitated. Why? Why did, why did Paul write the book of Romans? What caused him to write it? He wrote it to a group of people he didn't know. It's the only book like that. Every other book, it's people he knows intimately, and he's writing some kind of exhortation. Why did he write the book of Romans? See, isn't this is like core fundamental thing, and we don't even we don't even look at it, right? He was hearing what was happening in Rome. Well, yeah, he was doing that. That that's a fact. But what was he hearing that was making him write this letter to people he didn't even know? Well, I know that verse that says so you can know uh, glory and honor and immortality, and so grow them up. He certainly wanted to grow them up to be overcomers. But what precipitated the letter? You don't just. He certainly, that's certainly a key part of the, that's the, the core message that he has in there. But what precipitated him writing the letter? Huh? Yeah, well, he was congratulating them for their faith being spoken of throughout the whole world, but that's... He doesn't want the Judaizers to come in and corrupt, but what precipitated him writing the letter? He didn't have anything else to do, okay? <laughs> Look, if you look, if you look, and I think it's chapter two, I always get confused whether it's two or three. It says, as we are slanderously reported to have been teaching. 
as we have been slanderously reported that you are teach that we are teaching. Now, if you are an apostle and God has told you your mission is to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and your message is being slandered in Rome, is Rome important at this time? Why is Rome important? It's the center of the world. And who's your message being slandered to? A group of believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. If a group of believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world in the center of the world believe the slander about your gospel, what's going to happen to your ministry? Would you write a letter? Okay, now, why, why do we not know this? <laughs> because this isn't what we focus on. We focus on, I got a point to make. And I want to go find something to, it's, it's our tradition. This is our tradition. This is what's been handed down to us. And what I'm saying is, it's not a good tradition. This is one we ought to throw overboard. And we ought to say, thank you very much for that. But let me first look at who wrote this, who did they write it to, and why? Why were they writing this? Some things are fairly obvious. Why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Yeah, yeah, they had a big problem going on, right? They had a specific problem going on. And they had some first and second Corinthians, and they had questions, and he's answering questions. So that yes, sir, Tom. Well, you know, it's it's sort of interesting that that, uh, conservatives, when they uh, interpret the Constitution, uh, sort of the old school original Original, yes. They do the same kind of thing, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Uh, to interpret this new question based on the Constitution. They're trying to historically determine what the intent of the... Right. What did they really mean by this? And then how do we apply it in the modern era? Yeah, it's, just, it's the same kind of thing. It's the, it's the notion that the Bible was written in a normal manner, that a person meant something when they said it, and they intended for the person who was, who was hearing it to hear it in a certain way. And it's inspired so that whatever that said is true in every respect. So if we can get that perspective, we can apply that in all kinds of ways. Well, when you understand that uh, Paul wrote Romans because his message was being slandered, what would be the most important question you could ask next? Yeah, how was the, what was the slander? What was the slander, do you know? It's, it's uh, let us in, so Yes, yes. The slander in, in the Romans 2, it says, let us may do evil that good may come. That's the slander. And the, the other way he says it is, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because Paul's claim is, you cannot out the grace of God. No matter, You can run as fast as you can, and you will not get past God sinning. Because the cross has paid for everything. And if you pile it up, it's just going to be taller. You cannot out the grace of God because justification is completely free and independent of anything you ever do. And the reason the Roman road is there is because he is, he is uh, making it clear that justification comes by faith alone. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Circumcision came 20 years later. See, there's a total separation between covenant 
and righteousness and declaration, justification righteousness. The law came 400 years later. There's a complete separation between the law and justification righteousness. So the whole book of Romans is the question of, well, if we've been declared righteous, then why should we not just live in sin all we want to? Because everybody knows sin's fun. Nobody, nobody, nobody's going to deny that, okay? And so his whole, his whole point in his book is to, is to answer the question, why shouldn't we sin if we can? And that's why he says, well, it's sin's death. You've been resurrected. You got your, everybody comes to the funeral home for the, for the wake and the gathering. You get out of the casket. Everybody's happy. It's been a resurrection. Two weeks later, you say, you know, I was comfortable in that casket. I kind of liked that funeral home. And you go back, knock on it and said, can I get back in that casket again? Matter of fact, I might even like to be buried. And Paul's saying, you know, does that, does that really make any sense, really? You were a slave. You're set free. You're on the galley ship, chained. People are whipping you. Somebody comes and says, you've been set free. They unlock the manacles. Hallelujah, I'm free. You go for a month and you say, you know, my muscles just aren't what they used to be. And, you know, I kind of like being whipped. You know, is anybody going to do that? That's crazy. Why would you want to... You've come out from under condemnation. Sin has consequences. What, what, what payment do you get for sinning? Death. Yeah, that has consequences. And, and you were on the payroll of death, and now you don't have to be on that payroll anymore. You want to get back on that payroll again? You want those consequences, those negative consequences? Really? Now, we don't sin because we have to in order to get justification. We don't sin because... We don't want the wrath of God pouring on us that we've been delivered from. And in Romans 1, how's the wrath of God poured out? Giving us what we want. Letting us have what we demand. And so he's saying, don't do that. And he contrasts the righteousness of faith and the righteousness of the law because the righteousness of faith brings righteousness and the righteousness of the law doesn't. And the reason he's doing that is because his slanderers are preaching that the law is necessary as an integral part of justification. And that's the book of Romans. And if you understand that, it just all makes a lot more sense. And your ability to apply then the jot and the tittle is going to be much more accurate. And it is appropriate to use jot and tittle. You know, Paul builds one of his big arguments on the fact that seed is singular rather than plural. So getting that down to the minute is completely appropriate, but not without the full context. And I'm going to tell you, for me, listening to God by reading the Bible and, and asking that question, well, why is he writing this? Who's this to? Why is he saying that? And I've, what I've found is the more confusing a passage is, when I get to a passage and go, why? I automatically think I must not understand who's saying this and who they're saying it to and why they're saying it. And if I go straight back to that and I just puzzle on it until, ah, oh, of course. That's number one. Read the Bible. Look at the writer in the audience and why they wrote it. 
There's slander involved. Of course you're going to defend your, your ministry if you're slandered. The second thing that really helped me immensely was uh, Jody Dillo, who pointed out the, the technical phrase he uses, because he's a wonk, you know, the policy wonk guys. Illegitimate totality transfer. Don't you love that phrase? Illegitimate means you shouldn't do it. Totality meaning you always do it. Transfer meaning it's going from one thing to the other. And here's the notion. It's that you take the meaning of a word in one context and say, because it's that meaning in that context, then it must be that meaning in all contexts. And the word that has created the most confusion for me and, and, and obstacle to listening to God through reading the Bible is the word salvation and save. Because I grew up, and if you said save and soul in any kind of context, save and soul, that only meant one thing. The spider dangling over the fiery pit. And the question is, you know, if, is God going to let go or am I going to jump out of that hand and say, no, I don't want to go in that. That's all that it could ever mean. Only possible thing you meant. Because soul only means one thing, heaven, hell. And save only means one thing, heaven, hell. Now, what I've learned is that this Greek word sozo or soterio, whether it's a noun or a verb, is used in the Bible exactly the same way we use it in English. If I say to you, have you saved any money this week? What am I asking? Yeah, have you hung on to any? Okay, so my question is, have you delivered any of your wages from being consumed and delivered it to being preserved for future use? That's what I'm asking. What would you think if you asked someone that and said, hey, have you saved any money this month? And they said, oh, yes, I prayed over my checkbook and it came to Jesus. <laughs> it was going to hell and now it's bound for glory. What would you, what would you think about that? Think yeah, they think they're a nut, right? <laughs> That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do with this in Bible. You know, the word soul... Is an, in the English translation, it is a translation of the Greek word psuche, where we get our word psych, psyche from it, psychology. And half the time it's translated soul, and half the time it's translated life. Now, what if, what if somebody says, I want to save your life? What, what comes in your mind? Oh, oh, that means he doesn't want me to go to hell? And it doesn't come into your mind, right? But what if they say, I want to save your soul? Well, then I want you to go to heaven, right? It's the same word. It's just the translators are pushing it in a direction because they want to make everything about heaven and hell. So when it comes along and says, and the person was sozo from their disease, they don't write save from the disease. They write healed. But it's the same word because they're pushing it in a direction. And when I understood that, hey, Mario Rivera saves the game doesn't mean the Yankees are going to heaven. <laughs> you know, I always have to ask when I see the word save, who's being delivered from what? What's being delivered from what? 
And you know, most of the time when you see the word saved, it's a believer who's being delivered from the power of sin so they can live the Christian walk. Now, why would that make sense that that's mostly what it's saying? Who's writing these letters? Paul, John, Peter. Who are they writing it to? They're disciples. Peter says, I'm about to die. I'm going to die just like the Lord told me to. I was was sorry, I was going to be. I'm going to be martyred. I know it's coming. I'm writing this down because I've been telling you this over and over again. I'm not going to be here to keep telling you. I'm writing it down for you. It's, It's to his faithful that he's saying this. Is he going to say to the faithful, please go to heaven? It doesn't even make any sense. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And and you'll talk to people and they'll say, yeah, but every church has unbelievers in the audience. It's not a sermon for heaven's sakes. It's not an evangelistic service. They weren't recording it and then they transcribed it. That's not why. He's writing a letter from someplace else. And and when when I realized that, I was it's like the scales fell off my eyes. You know, I've, been, I've sat through trainings on the book of Hebrews uh, early in my Christian life, and I, and I got done and thought, I guess you just have to have a Ph.D. to understand this book. Sounds like it says the dog ran out of the house, and by the time that guy gets done, it's the deer was shot in the woods. <laughs> you know, it, how did he do that? I mean, just must have to have a THD. You know, that, that must be, no. Well, it's, no, no, it's actually pretty simple. If you just look at who wrote it, who wrote it to the book of Hebrews, this, this uh, writer's writing to a group of people. He says at the end, um, bear with these few words of exhortation. I'm hoping to be with you soon. Pray for me. He says, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. He says, I'm mindful of all the good work you have done and continue to do. He says, remember the days when you ministered to me in my chains and you, and, and, uh, you lost your possessions and were glad because you know you have more enduring possession in heaven. Does this sound like a bunch of lost people? Is, is it an evangelistic sermon to people he's never met before? This is not a Billy Graham letter. So anyway, so listen to God. Those are two huge keys that I've had in reading the Bible. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening.